Hi everybody, this is Gary Waite from Pegasus Battlefield Tours here in the UK and you're listening to your Papers, Please podcast, the show that brings you some of the lesser-known history of World War II. So, welcome to episode 6, where I'm going to relate the story of Marie-Madeleine Foucard, who was the head of the Alliance Resistance Network in German-occupied France. Under Marie Madeleine, Alliance became the largest French intelligence network of the war. It is unique in that it was commanded by a woman. And of course, quite a remarkable woman. My story with Marie Madeleine goes back about 20 years to when I first met her son Jacques, who lived in Normandy close to Omaha Beach. He and I hit it off immediately and within two years have become firm friends and business partners. I met a huge amount of resistance members and their families and historians over the years and attended many memorials with him. I even became the standard bearer for the Alliance Network on a couple of occasions and holding the official Alliance flag or colours at these ceremonies were extremely proud moments for me. Unfortunately, I never met Mary Madeleine, as she died in 1989, ten years or so before I met Jacques. And now, with his untimely passing in early 2023, this brings to an end my direct relationship with both Jacques and Mary Madeleine. We had hoped to make a short film together, but alas, that was never to be. But I hope this podcast conveys some elements of their spirit, as her legacy will remain embedded in the history of France forever. So, how does her story begin? Marie Madeleine was born on the 11th of August 1909 to Lucienne and Mathilde Bridoux in Marseille in the south of France. Her father was a French colonial shipping line executive responsible for trade and passenger routes across the globe and was based in Shanghai. Her mother, Mathilde, actually came back to France in order to give birth to Marie Madeleine, but soon after returned to the hustle and bustle of Shanghai, where Marie Madeleine then spent her first eight years, alongside her older brother and sister, Yvonne and Jacques. Shanghai was an exciting place in the early part of the 1900s and was by far the most expansive, richest and modern seaport in Asia at that time. They lived a good life in the colonial-built French Quarter, with wide, tree-lined boulevards and large, European-style houses. But on the other side, Shanghai was an open city, with a thriving economy, cultivating plenty of trade. And as no specific papers or passports were required to enter, this also encouraged an influx of refugees and revolutionaries from every continent, and also a far murkier underworld of mafia-style gangs, criminals and drug smugglers, all leading to a dark, seedy world of corruption and violence. Occasionally, Marie Madeleine and her brother and sister would venture with their Chinese nanny into these narrow, bustling streets full of noise and banter to buy sweets, and I'm convinced this foray into such a dangerous environment, which she apparently enjoyed so much, added to her DNA, or makeup, which she later would use to her advantage as a resistant. As I was preparing this today, I couldn't help remembering William Fairburn 
and Eric Sykes, who together served in the Shanghai police force around about the same time. And they later went on to train the SOE and OSS agents in close combat before parachuting into France. It was they who invented the lethal FS fighting knife, more commonly known as the commando knife, issued to all commandos and special forces during World War II. It was from their time in the police force in the very same shady back streets of Shanghai that their street fighting tactics were developed, perfected and then put to such good use. Later, in the SOE training schools, the agents they trained in turn trained the French resistance and maybe even some of Marie Madeleine's future agents. Anyway, I digress. Maybe that's a podcast for another day. Back to Marie Madeleine. So, after eight years in Shanghai, in 1917, her father was taken ill with a tropical disease and died. Her mother returned with her family to France and set up home in Paris. Marie Madeleine then received an upper-class convent education before falling in love at the age of 17 to a young army captain, eight years her senior. Edouard Jean Marique, the son of a general. He was subsequently posted to Morocco, which Marie Madeleine absolutely delighted in and definitely made the most of. It would have rekindled memories of Shanghai and the exotic colonial lifestyle she had so enjoyed. By this time, Marie Madeleine had developed into a very free-spirited and attractive young lady with a somewhat unconventional attitude for the time. She revelled in the social life, attending parties, cocktail evenings and banquets. She learned Arabic, rode horses whenever she could and volunteered at a local maternity hospital. I lived in Morocco during years before, before the war in the country that we call the Bled. It was a small camp with um, what we called Goumi. Um, they were Arabs. And we lived there as soldiers. A year after her marriage, she gave birth to her son Christian, and then two years later, her daughter Beatrice. But she didn't adapt to the new lifestyle of being mum, and after her relationship deteriorated, she split with her husband, and in 1933, went back to Paris. With money and a host of society friends, Marie Madeleine lived the full life of Paris in the 1930s, arguably the most vibrant cultural centre in the world at that time. Full of writers, poets, musicians, sculptors, painters and fashion designers, with a nightlife that often stretched deep into the following mornings. Against all French female doctrine of the time, she learned to drive and then bought a car. She learned to fly and then flew planes. She was living the life and then accepted a job at a Paris radio station as a producer, helping to launch the careers of singers like Edith Piaf. In April 1936, she attended an informal society gathering at her sister's house close to the diplomatic area of Paris, where the guests included a number of military officers. This was not at all unusual in her circle of friends, but this one would change her life forever. Of note in attendance was a 45-year-old lieutenant colonel called Charles de Gaulle, who got into a shouting match with another officer, 42-year-old Major Georges Lustano Lacau. Both were outspoken and ambitious, with egos to match. Both had got themselves into plenty of trouble with their more elderly superiors in recent times, and Marie Madeleine soon realised a distinct rivalry between them. 
The basis of their argument appeared to be the rise of Germany and how, in their eyes, their own superiors and politicians were not facing up to the task in hand. Anyway, the party ended, everyone went their separate ways, and that was that. Except, that was not that. The following morning, Marie Madeleine received a telephone call from the Major, Georges Lustano Lacau, asking that they meet. Young, pretty Marie Madeleine was well used to male attention by this time and thought the Major may well have designs upon her. But she needn't have worried, because as soon as he arrived, he immediately apologised for being so forward on the telephone. She'd actually even dressed quite frumpily in order to give the signal she was not interested. Anyway, at the meeting, the Major outlined his concerns over what was, in essence, part of the previous day's heated debate with de Gaulle, and ventured that Marie Madeleine had appeared interested. He went on to say that after the German occupation of the Rhineland the previous month, he thought the writing was on the wall for France. He wanted to start gathering information to present a dossier to a group of top-level military officers that would prove that the Germans were preparing for war with France. He continued along the lines that, in his opinion, the situation was far grimmer than anyone could imagine, and hopefully this dossier would open their eyes to what needed to be done. This work was to start immediately. Documents needed to be picked up in Belgium and Switzerland without delay. For this task he required help, and not by someone from the military. It had to be an outsider, and that outsider would need to have a car and that outsider would have to believe in the cause. Marie Madeleine did not have to think about it. She was in. And so began the next chapter of her life. As a spy. Marie Madeleine was 5 foot 6 and 26 years old, and was now working for Major Georges Lustano Lacau, acting as a courier for his messages and documents passing from country to country and returning to Paris laden with sealed envelopes stashed in the framework of her beloved Citroën Traction Avant. Around this time, Lustano Lacau gave himself a codename, Navarre, as I shall now refer to him. Navarre soon found himself in trouble again with his superiors and was removed from full-time military service after publishing articles in various military journals. So with his newfound time, he began his own publication, to which, as a cover, Marie Madeleine was now employed as a secretary come personal assistant. For two further years, they continued their intelligence gathering and recruitment of trustworthy agents in various cities across Western Europe. Eventually, after the German invasion of Poland and the declaration of war by Britain and France on 3rd September 1939, Navarre was recalled to the army as an intelligence officer with the French 9th Army based in the Ardennes. Navarre had repeatedly passed on information that the Germans were going to invade through the Ardennes, but was never believed. Well, they believed him on the 14th of May 1940 when General Rommel's 7th Panzer Division came screaming through, crossed the Meuse River and blitzkrieged their way across the open plains of northern France towards the Channel coast in a matter of days. This changed everything, and Marie Madeleine and her family left Paris for the relative safety of their country estate in the south of France. I was in France, in Paris, and then the fall of France happened. We had to fly away from Paris with my children in the, the south of France. Mm-hmm. Then the whole thing started, the Germans arrived, and uh, we thought at once that we 
wouldn't keep them. <laughs> we didn't want them. <laughs> so uh, we tried to organise ourselves. Navarre was soon part of the defeated French army and due to his previous connections to Marshal Pétain was eventually offered a position within the Vichy government which he decided to accept in order to carry on his intelligence activities which had now taken on a different angle. Marie-Madeleine travelled to Vichy to receive orders and pass on messages but had to keep a low profile in such a dangerous place. She then travelled around the south of France meeting agents and reorganising the network as per Navarre's orders. It was rather easy to find in that in, among them, among the officers, French officers, the people who wanted to carry on the, the job. It is around late 1940 that the network headquarters is removed from Vichy to the town of Pau at the base of the Pyrenees and the network is renamed Alliance. This to keep it as far away from the prying eyes and ears of Vichy as possible, which is becoming increasingly hostile. Navarre is also tipped off that he is being watched. Navarre meets Marie-Madeleine in Pau and passes on new orders that she is to travel the country as best she can, recruiting agents in every locality so as to be able to pull this information in order to hopefully pass on to the British and de Gaulle, who of course is now in London. This she does and starts to build a fledgling network in the unoccupied zone. But for the network to continue it needs money and communication equipment and that will have to come from London. I started with a few friends to, um, to build a réseau, as we called it, a network all over France. Then we tried to make contact with England. We sent uh, people through Spain and... Uh, it was rather difficult because uh, at first uh, people going to your place were, as we called, suspect. Navarre deploys two agents to make their way to London, which weeks later they succeed in doing, and he finally gets confirmation on their return that both the British and de Gaulle are interested and will financially support his network. However, the British Secret Intelligence Service want to meet him in Lisbon. So on 14th of April 1941, Navarre meets Kenneth Cohen from MI6 in Lisbon. As a result of these messages, the contact that I was seeking was made. And at the old cathedral of Belém, just outside uh, Lisbon, I spent seven successive mornings in prayer awaiting my fellow worshipper who was to come to me from France. He did not come and I decided to give it three days more. And to my immense relief, on the ninth day, Commandant Loustonneur Lacot Navarre arrived and knelt down beside me. We spent the next three days in the most intense planning to try and work out against an utterly unpredictable future the various methods and details of signals, parachuting, supplies, questionnaires, etc., which would, we hoped, enable certain Frenchmen to carry on the fight against Germany, although they were occupied, and at the same time to give them some protection against the German contre-espionage. The British are extremely excited that they've actually got an intelligence network in France, 
and give Navarre half a million French francs and a radio set with the promise that there was more to follow. The radio set is to be established in Pau. Marie Madeleine now receives clear instructions from Navarre exactly what the British want, and that is naval information from all the ports in France, as to shipping, submarine and troop activity. Airfield locations and activity. How many aircraft and which aircraft? Rail activity, troop activity and absolutely anything else of military significance. Police checkpoints, copies of new identity papers, travel permits and ration cards. Her orders are to recruit agents in all these locations, all information to be brought back to POW and relayed to London. And henceforth, all network members will have passwords. Marie Madeleine becomes POZ, P-O-Z, 55. We had to gather our people and uh, put them, as we call it, in the underground with false identity cards and uh, new... Uh, all sorts of things that were quite new for us. <laughs> we had the habit of living like that, of course. And very quickly, about three months after we started, we were about a hundred. It looks very little now, but it was a lot at that time. Unfortunately, just a month after this good news, in May 1941, and whilst Marie Madeleine was away, Navarre is arrested in Pau and subsequently given a two-year prison sentence by the Vichy government. This was due to a recent trip to North Africa. Before Navarre was arrested, an agreement was made with Marie Madeleine that if this was ever to happen, then she would take over the leadership. He had a premonition that he would be struck down early in the struggle. And to my great surprise, he nominated to me as his successor a girl who he told me was only 27. After all, she was the best placed. She had been involved since April 1936, over five years now. Due to secrecy, she was the only one other than Navarre that knew the whole picture of the network. Navarre trusted her, but would the rest of the agents, many of whom were senior military officers, prefects and lawyers, and most of the agents were men. Would she be able to do it? Time would tell. And it doesn't start well. The next few months were a terrible time for Alliance. The network had grown, but so too had the ability of the Vichy security police, the dreaded milice, to track down resistance. Collaborators were being offered generous sums of money and booty for successful arrests and being a resistant had become an extremely dangerous profession. These were early days for the resistance as a whole, not just Alliance and any small mistake led to disastrous consequences. Captured resistance was subjected to the most horrific torture and then either executed or handed over to the Germans for either more abuse or deportation to the concentration camps in Poland and Germany. In these early days, many of the resistance knew each other and many hid code names and addresses quite simply behind picture frames on the wall or concealed under rugs and floorboards. When these were found, it would lead to even more arrests, and that's how, in late 1941, the Alliance network and many others too were decimated. As arrests continued and even increased into December, the normally resolute Marie Madeleine found herself seriously questioning whether she could carry on. And if so, how? She soon found out that it was her the Melisse were after, and so she had to be on the move constantly. 
eventually after a particularly severe crackdown on Alliance, culminating in the arrest of headquarters staff in Pau and then her mother, she was advised to get out of France as quickly as possible. So she decided to face up to MI6, ask for their assistance with the current situation and finally let them know that POS 55 was a woman. And for that, she would need to travel to Madrid. Now, to cross the Pyrenees and the Spanish border by late 1941 was no easy task, especially as the Milice and the Germans were on the lookout, both for her and other agents. Add to that the weather. I remember crossing the Pyrenees in 1974 and the roads were steep, winding with hairpin bends every couple of hundred yards in places. That was in the summer, and for Mary Madeleine this is December, in the ice and the snow. I believe the road in question was actually built by the Romans. Anyway, one of Mary Madeleine's agents, Jean Boutron, still worked in Vichy and acted as a liaison officer with the Vichy embassy in Madrid and regularly had to make the journey. The only way in December to cross the snow-covered mountain range was to go by car train, where the car would be driven onto a flatbed rail truck and carried through the Pyrenees via a series of seemingly endless ravines and tunnels. Only problem with this, of course, is that the cars were searched by border police and customs officials. But Marie Madeleine was convinced this was the only way and agreed to be put inside a diplomatic mailbag, labelled and bound for the embassy in Madrid. To cut a very long story short, Marie Madeleine has to strip to her underwear in order to squeeze into the bag where she has to be in the foetal position with her legs tucked up and her chin pressed hard into her chest. Jean Boutron, along with another agent who is to travel hidden in the trunk, then pick up the bag and place Marie Madeleine on the rear seat of the car. Boutron cuts a small slit in the bag so she can breathe and then squeezes the scissors through the gap in case she will need to cut herself out. The journey is expected to be around two hours, but things go wrong when they reach the train station and are told the trains are running out of time and they have to wait for the next one in a few hours. Boutron drives towards the mountains but is turned back at a checkpoint, being told the mountain roads are under a couple of metres of snow. Returning to the train station, they eventually get the car, actually Mary Madeleine's own Citroen, up and onto the flatbed railway truck where it is strapped down and secured. By the time the train leaves, she has been in the bag at least six hours, with a further journey of at least two hours ahead. It is freezing cold. Marie Madeleine is in her underwear, in a sack, on the back seat. So, I'm afraid this is where we end part one. Such an amazing story, and there's plenty more to come in part two where we hear what happens during the dangerous train journey and how Marie Madeleine becomes the chief of the largest intelligence network in France during World War II. Yes, thanks for listening to Your Papers, Please with me, Gary Waite. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast and I look forward to catching up with you again soon. Please don't forget to subscribe so that you can be informed of all future releases. You can find me under Pegasus Battlefield Tours on Facebook and Twitter and the website www.pegasusbattlefieldtours.com Thanks everyone. Toodle pip. Toodle pip.